guy by the name of Samuel Berger said that Psalm 100 here was either specifically designed or else it was adapted to be sung when God's older covenant people brought the thanksgiving sacrifices into the temple. They were to sing this song when they brought the thanksgiving sacrifices, which are discussed in Leviticus 7 and other places. We newer covenant people of God no longer bring thanksgiving offerings to an earthly temple, but we still bring them. We still go into God's temple in our worship, but it's heavenly and invisible. So this psalm applies to us more fully, you might say. According to Charles Spurgeon, the song is all ablaze with grateful adoration and has for this reason been a great favorite with the people of God ever since it was written. Let us sing the old hundredth is one of the everyday expressions of the Christian church, says Spurgeon. I can't think of the Christian church wanting to sing any particular songs and to call it out. And here he says, the old hundredth is an everyday expression. Let's sing the old hundredth. We're going to sing old hundredth after the sermon, as I said a little bit ago. And I'm wondering, I don't even know if we'll recognize it when we sing it. Yeah, I know. You're all going to look at it now. Do I recognize this song? Paul's doing that. Georgine's doing that. <laughs> no, it's kidding. <laughs> I guess I want to give you the basic structure of the psalm, okay? It's four verses, the first four verses of imperatives. You know what an imperative sentence is, okay? An imperative sentence is you're being told to do something. So the first four verses are telling you to do things, followed by the reason in verse 5. Because, verse 5, because the Lord is good. For the Lord is good. Do these things. Take these actions. Think these ways because God is good. What's good about him? I'll get to that in a second, okay? First, what should we do according to this psalm? The four verses of imperatives, imperatives, if you look, the the do these things, things include being joyful in life. Gladly. Serving him. Singing to him and of him. Getting to know him better for who he is. And then we should fully come and worship him as he has prescribed us 
2. And in all these things, we are to thank him and bless his name. And the word bless there carries the impression of kneeling, of kneeling before his name. Now, non-believers, a non-believer, they might scoff and wonder, is he the kind of person you should give so much time and attention to? I mean, your whole life seems to be absorbed with God. Are you getting a little too caught up with religion? A non-believer often gives this kind of attention only to himself. He lives for self or another god. There are many gods throughout the world to be sure that people worship. But to those of us who know the Lord God, that kind of comment, those kinds of questions are foolish talk. Also a a bit dangerous. Of course he is worthy of the attention. And not only worthy, But he attracts us. He attracts us by his goodness. See verse 5. The psalmist tells us the kind of person our God is. Jehovah is good. I say Jehovah there. It says the Lord. Any time you see L-O-R-D capitalized, that's referring to his personal name. Jehovah. Yahweh. Jehovah is good. He is worth our every effort. He's the pot of gold near the end of the rainbow, the treasure buried in the field that you sell everything you have to go to find that treasure. There is no better pursuit. There is no one better to have. The Lord is good. That word there in verse 5, good, is the Hebrew word tob, tob. It, it means beautiful. The Lord is beautiful and pleasant. The Lord is pleasant and agreeable. He is agreeable. You think about some of the relationships hardships, challenges, and duties of life. And this Lord sounds like someone you should run after. I mean, every ounce of sweat in every minute of the day, you will never go wrong to have someone so mighty and good, so good, on your side. The psalmist also explains the Lord's goodness saying that it is steadfast with love and that God keeps on continuing with his loving. 
His loving ways. He does this forever. He's steadfast, which means a long duration. Forever, a long duration. Antiquity and futurity. Forever is his love. People aren't so loving. Angels aren't either. Though the good ones are good, they're not as good as he. And his love is not only steadfast forever, but he commits himself, according to the last part of that sentence, in faithfulness. Faithfully, in truth, some versions say, but faithfully to all generations of those who love him, we would think. Somewhere the apostle Peter says, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So if the Lord has brought you into his household, Know that he is forever for your good. Look, you'll you'll find no friend so good as Jehovah. No wife, no child, no pastor, no grandpa, no gram, no mom or dad can be so good. And we are, are surely thankful for many of them those dear ones, how much more than for him? So that is my thoughts for verse 5. Now, going back to the beginning, the title is a psalm for giving thanks. In the first two verses, it begins, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. The lyrics um, where it says, All the earth, to all the earth shall make a joyful noise and serve him and come into his presence. It really means all the earth. All people. It's not just the Israelites who should serve God or, or the Jews who should come to worship him, but every nation and peoples and tongues are told to do it here. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Is that appropriate? All the earth? All those people? Is it even possible? Surely you know it is. And it was the sure hope of the song's writer, for he, he understood the promises of the older covenant that the God of Noah and Shem and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David, maybe this is David writing the psalm, I'm not sure. But he knew that they understood there would be one who blesses all the peoples and languages. And this one would be sought after by kings and nations. 
So there is a bit of hope in that first sentence. An understanding, as he says, make a joyful noise all the earth. And since Jehovah created the earth and all the people when he created Adam and then carried mankind on through the waters of the flood in the ark of Noah, all mankind are still represented in that ark. Isn't it proper for all to come back into his presence, for all to make a joyful noise to him and to serve him? Men had to leave Noah's ark and procreate and go off. And then at Babel, they got divided up further and went their own way and and made their own gods or began to worship things that were no gods at all. But isn't it proper for them all to come back into his presence and make a joyful noise and serve him? It is their duty, but more importantly, it is their hope. It is their only hope. Verse 3 says, know that the Lord, there's those capital letters again, proper name, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, bear with this, but here I think the songwriter turns specifically to those Jehovah has claimed as sheep for his pasture. It seems legitimately to be a turn from that first verse of general mankind, verses 1 and 2, to now a particular people from out of mankind. We are his people, the psalmist says, and the sheep of his pasture. So I think he's, he's made a turn here. And I think this will become more evident in the next verse as he, he speaks of temple worship. But some find the key in the phrase, it is he who made us and we are his. The making here, the making here seems to be a little different from him just creating mankind, but the making of a new man or or a people, a, a rebirth. The making here speaks more of the making into a nation, okay, from out of the nations, making into a nation, into a kingdom of priests to serve God. The stress of verse 3 is that God made them into his people. God made them his sheep. And though not all men are so so made into his sheep, nonetheless, he made the ones who were or who are. God did it. Thank you, Father, for making us your sheep. Some translations in that verse actually say, it is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. 
It's a statement of humility, which should produce gratitude and thankfulness. If, if God had not set apart or made a people of us, then we would still be unmade. Indeed, it is he that did the making of us. There's a phrase, non nobis domine. It's Latin phrase, it, meaning, it means this. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. As if to cast away the idea, any idea of being self-made. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, or as the psalm says, not we ourselves, but you. It puts the singer going to offer his sacrifice in the proper frame of mind, doesn't it? I am the Lord's sheep, but not because of anything I've done. I did not make me into a sheep, but the Lord made me a sheep. No pride for man, all credit to God. And then verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Here the psalmist speaks of the gates and courts of the temple in the holy city. John Calvin comments of the writer that under the name of the temple, he signifies that God cannot be otherwise worshipped than in strict accordance with the manner prescribed in his law. It's true. We don't come to God on our own terms. The worship of God is always regulated by sacrifice, forgiveness, and a contrite heart. You, Christian, too, come to worship God in his temple, the only temple to worship God in today is not earthly, but heavenly. It's where we ascend spiritually when we worship here in this room. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We go to the greater temple, the original, not a copy. And we don't offer sacrifices complying with the lesser temple, but Jesus is our sacrifice and high priest who allows us to come right near to God. Thank you, Son of God. Indeed, we enter his gates and come into his courts. And if our hearts are grateful to God in life, then we will come giving thanks to him, and it will spill over with praise for him and to him. It will beat in our hearts. Oh, how he loves you and me, right? Oh, how he loves me and mine. He doesn't quit loving me. At times when I've gone like a sheep astray, he has always brought me back into the fold. Do you know the love of the good shepherd? 
Spurgeon writes, in all our public service, the rendering of thanks must abound. It is like the incense of the temple, which filled the whole house with smoke. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That's kind of where we began, verse 5. All the living and worshiping we are told to do in the first four verses, what I called imperatives, start and end here. For the Lord is good. And he's drawing all men to himself. He's, he has made large the pasture to keep his sheep. And you and I come from the nations and peoples and languages to worship Jehovah, the God of heaven and earth the only one who is worthy of such complete attention. Let us pray. Lord, we uh, are indebted for everything to you. We are grateful that you made us sheep of your pasture. You are good, and your love is wonderful. I pray that you keep working in us, keep showing us yourself, that we might know you better and better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.